Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 40th episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and I met my guest co-host this week at Elon University. We were both communications majors. She is a true Northwestern girly, the first who joined this podcast, I believe, anyways. And now she works in marketing at Emancipat, a nonprofit with locations in Austin, Houston, and Philadelphia that makes vet care affordable and accessible. My guest co-host this week is Jamie Snover. Hello, Jamie. So good to see your face. Hi, Leo. It's so good to see you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited that you decided to join. And I'm also so excited um, because, again, anyone who's listened to like more than like five minutes of this podcast knows how much we love our rescue animals. Um, yes. And, you know, like we so love that you're doing that. I really want to know before we even get to the wine, just to like let everyone know where our priorities lie. Right. I want to know all about your job and how and how everything, you know, works you know on that end of things I need to know all about this because I'm obsessed yeah absolutely so Emancipet is a nonprofit veterinary clinic where we offer free and discounted preventative services like spay and neuter vaccines that kind of stuff and we're really here because we believe everybody wants to do the best for their pet but doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. always have the resources or the education to know what to do And so we are specifically located in areas where we're needed most, specifically called Mm. veterinary deserts. Um, And yeah, it's really, really cool. We have an amazing research team that does a lot of work to pick where we end up. We're also in two PetSmart stores right now, which is a really cool kind of experiment. Um, But yeah, we are open to anybody. There's no kind of um, income requirement to come to a man's pet. Anybody can come and it's way cheaper than a regular vet. Oh, I know those vet bills very, very well. So I totally understand that and appreciate that. Um, but also, so, cause I, cause I feel like, cause we talk all the time, right. Or hear all the time about like, um, about shelters, right. Like, you know, being full to the brim. And I feel like a big part of that is like, you know, no matter how low cost it is to like pick up, to like get a rescue animal or any animal, right. It's like, it's the maintenance, right. Of like, you know, I pet spend more on healthcare or my dogs than I do on myself right like you know so it's it's like like that's like a huge barrier for people so I feel like if that it was more like accessible and I'm sure I don't have to explain this to you at all I'm sure but like you know except more accessible to people like you know that probably would not be as much of a problem these days right yeah we find that one of the bigger reasons why pets are returned to shelters because people can't afford to take care of them yeah so we're trying to help keep pets out of the shelter and with the people who love them yeah I could totally see you know with that first vet bill is just like such a huge like shock like you don't think about that aspect of things you just see like the you know love like lovely cuddly you know that kind of you know like you know aspect of pet ownership you don't think about anything else so um yeah crazy so thanks so much for what you guys do you love our nonprofits here on crime over wine so appreciate you so glad you're here um but let's get to um wine um i and i know you're very excited about this part i am too so let's talk about that so this week we are drinking starborough's sauvignon blanc from marlboro new zealand it's like a wind whipped seagrass on a warm summer day it's the perfect pairing for a casual catch-up like this one and a quick bite touched with hints of fresh guava sweet kiwi zesty citrus and tropical passion fruit so like i know we just stepped into fall y'all but like (laughs) this is giving summer wines for sure absolutely like this is summer wind whipped i want to know what that means (laughs) 
I know, I know. Well, I'm just picturing, yeah, like, I just, like, think about, like, like, uh, like this is, I'm getting so relaxed just even, like, picturing this, but just, like, you know, just, like, the, like, um, you know, like, the grass that just, like, flows in the wind. Yes. It's just, like, on a, like, on a beach day, like, there's no other sound, just the waves, like, uh, like, I need to go to, to, to go for a beach trip, but I think this is probably as close as I'm going to get to it, this wine. <laughs> Me too. So let's go there, Jamie. So here you go. Man, uh, what a great sound that is. It's, like, kind of, like, sand-colored, too, like, almost, when you pour that it into is. the glass. It is, yeah, like, I'm very like excited. Yellow, but... Okay, well, let's just go for it. Cheers to you, Jamie. Appreciate Cheers. you. Cheers! It's good. Oh, love. Okay, this does kind of taste like wind-whipped seagrass. I get, like, sunscreen yeah. elements, but in a good way. Oh, my gosh, same. <laughs> no, seriously, this tastes, it's literally, this tastes like summer in a glass. Oh, it's really, really mm-hmm. good. Yeah, I'm Ooh. so into this one. Ooh, uh, oh, I'm so mad that that summer is almost over. I would be drinking this all summer long. This is so good. It's still 100 degrees here in Austin, so Fair. I'm pretending. Yeah, it's, it's still permanent, summer. permanently summer in Texas, I'm sure, except for when yes. the entire state like freezes over, um, you know, yep. in like January. But um, you know, we won't talk about that. But the, <laughs> but um, but the, so I do like when I'm like literally like I drink this and I was just like transported right to like like a porch like out on, like yes. right on the beach like summer vibes like you just like per, like uh, beach vacation kind of energy here. This is gonna be hard not to drink this mm-hmm. whole bottle. Well, you can drink the whole <laughs> bottle. I won't tell. One genie, just everyone on this podcast will know. So, no one I'll else. I'll just be hungover at work tomorrow. <laughs> Listen, I I will say so. Like, and you know, like like Jamie. So, like again, Jamie and I met in college. So, like like this is like just think about this for a second but like so think like i just like transport like way back to like you know the way that we behaved back then right and like now i do this podcast and i'm I'm, like i'm useless the next day like this is where i'm at so so yeah so i feel yeah i feel you there so we've seen some things together we have seen some things together well we will that's a totally different podcast that would actually be total sidebar that would be such a good podcast like college horror stories Oh, we have some good ones. That would be so share. good. I am like I'm having all sorts of ideas here. Well, that's when Jamie and I are the co-hosts of that podcast, we will <laughs> let you all know. But um, you know, let's talk about this case, Jamie, because there is so much to unpack here. Um, we have to get right to it. So let's do that. Let's do it. All right. So this week, Jamie, I want to tell you a tragic story about a quadruple murder that shattered a small town in Indiana, and prosecutors are still trying to zip this case shut for good. This week, I want to tell you about the Pelly family and the prom night murders. In Lakeville, Indiana, in 1989, the Pelly family was piecing together this really interesting hodgepodge of their separate lives. There was Rob and Don Pelly, who each had kids of their own from a previous marriage. Don had three kids, nine-year-old Jesse, eight-year-old Janelle, and six-year-old Jolene. Rob had two kids of his own, too, 17-year-old Jeff and 14-year-old Jackie. Yes, all J names, unclear why exactly, but they are. Rob was fairly new to this area. He had just moved with his kids from Florida in 1986 to start a new life. He was a minister at Olive Branch Church, and when he and Don, both widows, got married, they tried to figure out the best way to blend their two pretty large families into one household. And they both figured that the best and most effective way to do 
that was to adopt each other's children and that's exactly what they did that's interesting i come from a blended family too and never really considered adoption Mm -hmm. that's yeah that's interesting well and i would imagine right like losing a parent or a spouse is like Mm. pretty traumatic right and so like i could see like a world where it was just like well like like let's just like start this whole new thing like that's a very traumatic experience so like let's just like do like let's just like try over like start over yeah just like you know like come together on these like very like unique shared experience here so yeah yeah, especially at that like young age yeah right exactly um, well, the Pellies were living a pretty quiet, normal Midwestern life out of the spotlight. They stuck to their routine, go to school, go to work, have dinner, go to church on Sundays, and that was pretty much it. According to his children, though, Rob was known to be pretty strict. And, you know, I do kind of picture this, you know, late 80s preacher dad, life by the book kind of deal. Everyone was expected to be absolutely perfect and uphold the family name. April 29th, 1989 was the night of Jeff's high school prom. Now, this was a pretty big deal. The school went all out for this day. It was more than just the prom. It was the lead up to the dance and then the after prom events. And plus this entire class had a tradition to go to the Great America Amusement Park in Chicago the day after the prom. The whole class was really looking forward to it, including Jeff and his girlfriend too. But just 20 minutes before everything was supposed to get going for the night, Jeff gets into big trouble with his dad. You see, Rob finds out that he had stolen CDs and money from a neighbor's house and gotten arrested for it, and Rob was absolutely furious this preacher was not letting it go, and he tells Jeff that he was grounded and wasn't allowed to go to the prom or any of the after-prom activities either. Yikes. Honestly, yeah. that that's fair. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. He's been arrested. <laughs> yeah, arrest would certainly, you know, ruin prom. Like, I could see yeah, that. I could totally see that. But again, like, super small town, like, super, you know, strict dad. Like, this was not flying. Um, I could, but, uh, like, also, too, like, like from, like, my friends who have really strict parents, too. Like, those are always the most rebellious kids, yep. right? So, like, this is all tracking for me, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Definitely tracks. He must have stolen a lot of money to get arrested because the CDs, yeah. I could kind of see that, but I wonder yeah. how much money it was. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, ne- I never saw, like, exactly how much it was. But, like, also, too, like, like again, small town, like, the cops know everybody, that kind of thing. Like, you know, right. like, so, like, I, like, world travel, like, world travels fast and, like, I'm assuming that, like, you know, crime, right? Like, normal, like, crime, like, you and I are thinking of, you know, when we think of, like, you know, like, what police typically do, not really happening in this small town. So, like, again, we're traveling fast. You know, this is, this was a big deal. Like, Preacher's son, you know, gets, like, gets in, in, you know, into this kind of trouble. So, it's, the the scuttlebug is, is traveling very, very quickly around Lakeville. So, Jeff had plans to drive his girlfriend to the prom using this vintage Mustang that belonged to the family, but that clearly was not going to be happening, right? Rob even reportedly removed pieces of the Mustang to make sure that Jeff was not going to sneak out and take the car without his permission. But eventually, Rob supposedly changes his mind and says that actually, okay, Jeff can go to the prom, but none of the after-prom activities, and the only way he was going to do that is if Rob actually drives him himself. That's so interesting. What a change of heart so quickly. Yeah, right. And so again, like this whole thing, like like 20 minutes before he was supposed to leave, he gets grounded. And then 20 minutes later, he's like, okay, no, actually you can go. Right. I don't know. Like, I guess like prom's a big deal, right? Like, lo- like once in a lifetime, like you're never going to go to prom again, you know? So it's like kind of makes sense like i could see how it's like okay you know like maybe overreacting but like you know you're not you're not hanging out with your friends for like six months after this or something like i don't know so but 
it was very, very fast, very, very chat, the fast change of heart. Um, but around, you know, 4.35 in the afternoon, a bunch of friends go over to the Pellies to take pictures. And I guess for some context here that I don't fully understand, because I'm not really part of this community, the Pellies live in like a church house, like one that's actually owned by the church, but Rob lives in because he's a minister. But it's like expected that members of the church can use it for things like pictures or church events and that kind of thing. Like it actually belongs to them. It doesn't belong to the family. And that the Pellies would host parties and events and things like that. So this was a fairly normal thing for the friends to be over there. But they later said that things were really tense in the Pelly household when they went. Jeff seemed really angry. And the friends later noted that he wasn't dressed in like a tux or looked, you know, ready for the prom at all. Instead, Jeff was wearing a pink and blue shirt and blue jeans. And remember, Rob had agreed to let him go on the condition that Rob drives him to the prom. Well, the friends leave shortly before 5. And by 5.20, Rob had apparently had a change of heart for this whole thing because Jeff is taking the Muskang to the prom. He's seen at a local gas station needing help fixing the car. It was apparently idling, and at the gas station, he spent a few minutes under the hood before returning a wrench he borrowed from the clerk and continuing on his way. But notable here that Rob was nowhere to be seen. That is super interesting. And he's still not in his tux and just in the regular clothes? Right. Yeah, we're about to find out what happened with what's going to happen with the tux. So I'll definitely hold that thought there. But so like a couple like things there for me, right? So like he's so he's fixing the car, and if you remember, Rob had like taken the pieces out of the Mustang. Yeah. Um, and so like you would think that if Rob like had this change of heart and was like, okay, you can't take the Mustang, like he would put the pieces back, right? So he didn't take it on his own. So just strange, like you said, like it's all like it's just. Mm, icky and happening very fast too Mm -hmm. like he seems to be flip-flopping a lot Right. Yeah. So, so again, so timeline here, right? So like the friends are there around four 30, like, pres- like right before he's supposed to, like right before all this, um, he gets grounded, he changes his mind. And by five twenty, he's like on his way. Yeah. Okay. So it's very strange. Um, so Jeff went to his girlfriend's house to change into his tuxedo and they went to the dance. They had a great time. Everything was totally as you would expect. Jeff, his girlfriend and their friends all went to the bowling alley after the prom and then to a friend's house for a post-prom sleepover before they were all going to go to the amusement park in the morning. Before going, Jeff's girlfriend's mom even made, like, a pretty strange comment to Jeff, saying that she was surprised his family had let him go to the park, to which Jeff replies, saying he had a, quote, two-day pass from Pelly Prison. But the night of this prom was so beyond abnormal, because the way Jeff's life would change this weekend simply could not be put into words. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Get ready for that big test with Study.com. Study.com offers learning materials and test prep, even LSAT study prep guides for all of my legal nerds listening. Unfortunately, there aren't any wine study guides, and believe me, I did check. 
Listeners can get 30% off their first three months of any subscription level using the promo code CRIMEOVERWINE. Again, that's promo code CRIMEOVERWINE, no spaces, for 30% off your first three months at study.com. Learn faster, stay motivated, study smarter with our sponsor, study.com. The night of the prom, a friend of Rob and Don's drove by the Pelly house around 5.30 when the couple did not show up to a pre-planned social event. And the scene was eerie, to say the least. All of the cars were in the driveway except for the Mustang, but all the curtains were closed. And when they went to go check the doors, they were all locked, which was very unlike the Pellys. Because, again, this was basically like a community home, more or less. That's very weird. That is adding yeah. to the strange series of events that is happening. And it seems like yeah. Jeff is the one kind of in control of the whole situation. Well, and again, like very, very fast here, right? Like again, so like the like the friends are over at the house at four thirty, and everything's strange but uh, normal, right? And then five thirty comes around, and everything is just like on lockdown. It's just, it's it's all happening very, very fast. But, you know, what was even more unlike the Pellies was to miss church on Sunday morning. Rob was scheduled to deliver a sermon that morning while Jeff was at the amusement park, but Rob never showed up. That was enough of a red flag for friends of the family to ignore, so parishioners decided to go and check up on the Pellies. They head up to the door, but again, the curtains are shuttered, the doors are locked. There aren't any signs of anything broken necessarily, though, but when they knock the few times, there's no answer. So they use a master key to open the doors, and what's inside is absolutely shocking. There's Rob in a hallway upstairs covered in blood from two clear gunshot wounds at close range. Oh my goodness. All right, we're getting into it now. Yeah. Yeah, and like again, like like this was like like just to put this all into context here again. Like this is small town church town, right? Where like the the church really runs the community, right? And so like like again, I read like master key, and I was like, why the heck do people have like master key of the house? But then like you, I think it all like like I'm getting this picture of just like everyone knows everybody, like yeah. everyone is just like all these people like know like have probably been to that house a dozen probably more times, and like know what to kind of expect, and just like. Like, again, like, by the next morning when things are just a little off, like, that's when you kind of, the like, alarm bells are starting to, are starting to kind of go off. Right. Here, right. So, yeah. So, I don't know. It's just, is and, like, it probably has to be, like, the talk of the town at this point. Yeah. Right? Like, everyone knows. So. I think Rob not even showing up to yeah. deliver his sermon would have been story enough, let mm-hmm. alone something tragic happening. Yeah. No, you're, yeah, you're definitely right about that. So, of course, they immediately call police, who show up to the home and check everything out to see no sign of forced entry or any sign of a home invasion by any means at all. And, you know, this is a small town, right? The Pellies are a well-known family in town, so the police know that Rob has a wife and five kids who all should be home. So they check out the rest of the home, the bedrooms, the bathrooms, and then they head downstairs to the basement. And the scene is horrifying and heartbreaking all at once. There are Don, Jolene, and Janelle, Don's two daughters, the youngest of the five, 
they are dead and covered in pools of blood. Now, I know this is going to be hard to hear, especially for anyone who's listening right now who has children, so just, like, hang on here. But the three of them are huddled together in the basement, entangled with each other's bodies. The Dawn is draped around her two precious young daughters in a protective stance, and they all have died, again, from clear gunshot wounds at close range. Oh my god, that's terrifying. And the fact that they're all huddled together in the basement, like they mm-hmm. they knew something was happening. Yeah, and like more than than that, right? Like they like they knew something like bad was going on, right? right? Like and like like and Don was just like clearly trying to just like sh- like shield them from like like anything bad that could ever happen to them. And again, let's just like reiterate like Jan- like Jolene and Janelle are 6 and 8. Ugh. Like man, like I don't like just they did not know anything like bad in the world was like even remotely possible. Right. Uh, so, man, it's just and so 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 again, Dawn has um, has three kids, um, J- um, Jolene, Janelle, and Jesse. Um, and we're gonna get to Jesse in a second. Um, and then and then Rob has um, has Jeff, and then there's also Jackie too. And we're, again, we're gonna get back to Jackie here in a second. So Jesse and Jackie spent the night at friends' houses. Jesse went to a sleepover, and Jackie was visiting a friend who was in college. But this is the land before cell phones, right? So the daughters only find out what happened when they get home and see this massive police presence. And we are also about to tell you how Jeff finds out about what happened to his dad and stepmom. So hold that thought, too. Oh, my gosh. Imagine just coming home and expecting to see your family and seeing all of that. Yeah, yeah, and, like, like just normal weekend, like, normal little, like, girl stuff. Yeah. Like, teenage girl stuff, like, man, like, like just everything changing overnight. Talk about that. I mean, seriously. Oh, my gosh. Well, <sighs> I gotta know what happened inside. Well, police can tell that the gunshot wounds that killed Rob, Don, Jolie, and Janelle were all inflicted using a shotgun, and conveniently, there is one missing from the gun rack that was kept inside the master bedroom. Now, at first, police linked this theory that, you know, Rob likely snapped and rounded up his wife and two kids in the basement of the home and killed them before going upstairs and turning the gun on himself. But I don't really see how that could ever even be possible, because not only did police never find any shell casings anywhere inside the home, Mm. a clear indication that the killer cleaned up after themselves, but police never even find the gun either. Oh my gosh. Wait, question. So there was a gun rack in the bedroom. Was Mm -hmm. it locked? Was it just chilling on the wall? Like, this seems a little interesting. So we are talking about Indiana in the 80s. So, like, let's keep that in mind here, Damie. Like, does it really surprise me? (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, yeah, again, talk about, like, you know, having, like, more responsible gun ownership. But, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, you look at pictures of this, it literally just looks like, like a, um, like a spice rack and but it's for guns. Like that's oh that's God. what we're talking about here. Um and so it's like I it's not locked like that kind of thing. Oof. But yeah, so anyways. But um you know, as police process the scene, they don't find a heck of a lot of anything else either. Not a whole lot of physical evidence, really not a whole lot of anything. What they do find though is in the washing machine. All that's in the washing machine is a pink and blue shirt and blue jeans just like the ones that Jeff's friends remember him wearing when they went to take pictures for the prom. Oh, man. Hmm, the only person not there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In not certain wardrobe. 
Yeah, right. And so at this point, police are starting to piece together how the night of the prom went in the Pelly household. They hear about the tension that night, and they, of course, already knew of Jeff's arrest for stealing the CDs and the cash from the neighbor. But now they're hearing that Rob had grounded Jeff just moments before he was supposed to leave for his prom. So, you know, as part of their investigation, they take the clothes and they use luminol on them to test for blood. And they light up. There is blood residue all over the clothes. Oh my goodness. Oh, this is not looking good for you, Jeff. Nope, not really. You know, so of course, after all of this, police decide that there is exactly one person that all of the evidence that they have gathered is pointing to. Only one person who had even a shred of motive and even a possible opportunity to kill half of the Pelly family. And that person is 17-year-old Jeff Pelly. Hello, Crime Over Wine listeners. I am Rachel. And I'm Heather. We are the hosts of Like Mother, Like Murder. We bring you the good, the badass, and the crime. Each week, we bring you stories from missing and murdered to survivors and women who empower you. And of course, some mom talk sprinkled in. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts at Like Mother, Like Murder. And give us a follow on social media so that we can say hi. Okay, love you, bye. Okay, love you, bye. Crime Over Wine is sponsored by BetterHelp. As someone who's used therapy for years, I know that finding a therapist can sometimes be a stress on its own, juggling your full-time job, your family, your friends, your podcast, and trying to find the right therapist on top of that can almost feel impossible. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp matches you with a therapist that works for you on your terms. It's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few questions, BetterHelp can match you to one of 33,000 licensed professional therapists in as little as a few days. And because finding a new therapist is a lot like finding a new bottle of wine, if you don't jive with your therapist, you can easily switch to a new one at no additional cost. You can get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com slash crime over wine. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crime over wine for 10% off your first month. Join over 4 million people who decided to get help and get happy with BetterHelp. So, Jamie, how is this going for you? I'm feeling like I'm on a beach somewhere right now, honestly, but I'm in my closet, so. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting. This wine is so carefree, and this story Mm -hmm. is, I'm, like, actually feeling it in my cut. Yeah, Yeah, it's very tense, and so kind of some polar opposite situations happening. Yeah, sure is, but so, so like, so, like, revisiting the flavors here, right? So, I am definitely getting, like, a, a lot of, so, the, like, a lot of lime here. Like, it's very citrusy for You sound sure, like you know what you're talking about. So gives, you're doing like, it well. Like New Zealand wines from what I know of New Zealand ones, like, <laughs> not, which is not a whole lot. Um, but let's go back to the, to the. Um, oh, actually, so it's zesty citrus. It's not lime Ooh. at all. I thought it was lime, but it's so citrus, lime, pretty much the same thing. Um, sweet kiwi. I'm definitely getting kiwi. And yeah. tropical passion fruit. I definitely get the passion fruit when I'm smelling. I'm yeah. like smelling and swirling it, acting like I know anything about wine. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I, I like, uh, it's really kind of funny because I am like, I try to like, like, you know, act like a sommelier, like in any way, shape or form. But in reality, like as soon as I 
up out of this closet, I'm just like, okay, who cares? Like, it's just like toss it back. Like, give me another bottle. <laughs> like, so I do fake it till I make it when I'm on this podcast, though. No, I've been listening to some episodes, and you definitely sound like you know what you're talking about. So you're doing oh, it well. <laughs> don't tell anyone that I actually have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to wine. Um, so that's our little secret there, Jamie Snowbird. So. Well, let's get back to this case because you talked about how it's a like it's it's dark one compared to the wine and it's about to get even darker. So let's get oh there. Boy. Let's yeah. do it. Well, so police go to the amusement park where Jeff and the rest of his class are enjoying their post prom trip and they approach Jeff to tell him why they were there, that his parents had been murdered, and that he had to come with them to answer some questions. They take Jeff back to the station where he's questioned with his grandparents in the room and they start asking him about his version of events. And Jeff says that yes, his dad did ground him over his arrest, but right before he was going to go to the prom, his dad had relented and decided to let him enjoy the prom and to postpone his punishment, which is why he was able to take the Mustang to the prom as planned without his dad being there. But by this point, investigators had already spoken to his classmates, friends, and neighbors about the murders and about his relationship with his dad and stepmom. They said that as far as they were aware, Jeff's dad did postpone his punishment, but only so that he could go to the actual dance, not so that he could take the Mustang or attend any post-prom activities. And on top of that, some friends tell investigators something a little odd. They said that Jeff seemed to be having, like, a really great time at the prom, just like nothing was wrong, which, to be fair, nothing was wrong, at least as far as he knew from what he was want, he wants investigators to believe. But all of their friends say there was about a 20-minute period where Jeff was nowhere to be found. That's so interesting. I think it's weird. So they talked to his friends, Jeff's mm-hmm. friends, before they got to him. Is that what happened? So, so I th- what I'm guessing here is that, like, they went to go. So, they again, this is in Chicago, um, mm. not uh, like outside of Indiana. And so, um, so they, I'm assuming what probably happened was they, like, went and, like, took him and then, like, took notes from his friends and classmates, like, while they were there. Simultaneously. And, yeah, right. And then, like, while they were taking Jeff back to Lakeville. That's my assumption here, but I never really got, got like, clear answers on that exactly. But I would also probably guess that they were, like, talking to friends and neighbors who, like, went to the scene of the crime mm. back in Lakeville. So I'm assuming that they pro- they probably gathered a whole lot of information in this, like, probably, like, hour, two hours that they were able to find out where Jeff was. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. all right. The golden question, where was Jeff in those 20 minutes? Well, I never really saw, an, a, like, a clear explanation for this. And I don't necessarily believe that we're led to think that this is when, you know, Jeff may have killed his parents, at least, again, from not from, a, like, a Jeff is guilty perspective. Because I just don't think that's enough time for him to get home, kill his parents, clean it all up, stash the gun, and then get back to the prom like nothing was wrong. But I do think that it's more likely that we're led to think that this is more of just, like, an odd thing for Jeff. Like, maybe something that didn't really, you know, feel too eerie just a bit strange in hindsight maybe kind of thing right and 20 minutes definitely is not enough time for that he could have been going to the bathroom or going to get a snack or anything right right and again i think i like maybe like the like like what I'm kind of picturing here is just like, oh my God, Jeff's like the party on the dance floor kind of thing. And then, oh, where's Jeff? Has anybody seen Jeff? And then like all of a sudden he's just like back and everyone's just like, what the heck happened to Jeff? Like, you know, like that's, that's more so what I am picturing here. So, and like, and like, I also would probably guess that like, like they're probably tracking Jeff's every single step and like trying to figure out like where he was like literally every single minute of the night. 
Um, and so, like, maybe there's just, like, a 20-minute gap where, like, nobody could ex- specifically account for where he was. Yeah, and if all so. signs are pointing towards him, they're going right. to use, you know, any any guesses yeah. that they have. Very, very true. But people also start to tell police that Jeff had a really strange relationship with Rob and Don, particularly with Don. Rob was pretty strict, as we know, but Jeff tells police that he and Don just did not see eye to eye. And Jamie, I'm hoping that you're going to be able to read the section of the interview with police for us. Yes. The quote says, We didn't get along real well. I mean, we talked hi-bye type thing, but we never really talked to each other or anything. I mean, I didn't hate her or anything, but we just, we, we tolerated each other. End quote. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so... I, I don't know. And, like, like I could see it, right? Like, like stepmom, like, comes in the picture. Like, you know, you're not my mom. Like, it's, like, mm-hmm. and I'm sure, like, it sounds like he lost his mom at, like, a pretty formative age. You know, there's, like, a whole, like, it's probably a little bit of a pent-up, like, issues there. But I don't, like, again, like, icky, right? Like, ickiness here that, like, the, that this is, like, the relationship that he's known to have mm-hmm. with his dead stepmom at this point. So yeah. Icky, yeah. but not not malintent, but definitely no. still icky. But yeah. would you would you reveal malintent in this sure. kind of interview? I wouldn't. And that's uh, it's so true about that. And that's that's what I always picture with these type of situations and like in these in- interrogations where like they just see like I think back to um to the Vincent Vierfuhr case that we did on episode twenty nine of this pod uh, episode. 30 on this podcast where like um angelica is just like offering up like all of this like dirty laundry that that her that she and um uh vincent had and it was just like like and like they like use that against her later on and it's just like if i killed somebody and i know i killed somebody like why would i like 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 spew out all of my motive like right there like right the first chance i'm asked like i don't know so I don't know. I I just don't know. It's just it like so I never really know what to make of any of that. Right. And it does seem like if it was Jeff, I mean he cleaned up the mm-hmm. shell casings. He did the laundry. Like he right. seems smart. Too right. smart to say, yeah, I hated my stepmom. Yeah. Well, but like you say that, so like like the like you like sure the like cleaned cleaned some stuff up but like not super well you know what i mean like like sure like the like the shell cases are gone like they never found the gun like okay but like there they are like like strewn about which like maybe he was like okay i'll deal with that when i get home from the prom like hopefully hopefully Mm -hmm. no one will notice but like it's not like he like like the clothes like you would think he they would he would stash the clothes too but like that didn't really happen so like i don't know I don't know. It, it doesn't really seem all that well thought out to me if it's supposed to be well thought out, you know? That's a good point because it was Sunday and he lives in a church house and right. his father is a preacher. Obviously, yeah. someone's going to come looking for him on right. Sunday morning. Right. Which, like, I, like to be fair, like, he wants to go to the prom, right? It, again, like, on the on the boat of, like, Jeff's guilty here, like, that's, like, that's the thought process of, like, okay, well, I need to, like, I need to do this. If I'm going to do it, if I'm going to be able to go to the prom, I need to do this now. But... Yeah. Yeah, we shouldn't be giving rationale to a potential murderer. True. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that is very, very fair because you could probably go in circles here. But it, 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 but it just, it just doesn't like it doesn't make sense. It doesn't right. really make a whole lot of sense if that's it, like from from what they are leading us to believe. In, like investigators are leading us to believe like how this whole thing went down. 
Um, but, you know, as this interview went on, though, police start letting on that Jeff is a suspect in his family's murder. As, and Jeff denies having any involvement. But when police start grilling him a bit harder about the inconsistent statements that he's giving to police compared to what his friends, neighbors, and classmates are telling them, investigators said he, quote, slumped down in his chair, lowered his head, covered his eyes, and asked whether he would go to jail that night and whether he would get the electric chair, end quote. Oh my god. Okay, is that not a confession? Seems confession-esque, right? But, like, also, but so again, putting myself into his shoes, right? Like, playing devil's advocate here, like... If it's, I don't know how long this investigation went on, but I have seen in investigations that like last several hours mm. where by the end of it, you're just like, like, am I going to jail? You know what I mean? Right. Like, a, a, like what's, what's happening here? You know? So like, it, it could just be like him just like relenting. And again, I don't know when this statement, like how long into this investigation, this, this statement was made, but also too, like they don't really have a whole lot. Yeah. Here. Like, you know, don't. like they have his like clothes in the washing machine, which like, hello, like, obviously, like, like I do laundry every day. Like, that doesn't mean I'm a murderer, you know, and like, sure, like there's like they find blood on it. Like, OK, um, like he's probably one of the last people to, to see his family alive. So like, OK, but that's super that's all super circumstantial. Right. Yeah. Like, it's nothing. Phys- it's nothing hard here at all. So. It's very true. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of this investigation, police didn't really have much in the way of hard physical evidence, just like we were saying, a lot of circumstantial pieces. So they had nothing to arrest or charge Jeff. So they ended up letting him go that night. Go where? He has nowhere to go. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I wonder. I, and like, yeah, and this is all having like 24 hours afterwards. Like, I wonder like how well the crime scene was cleaned up at this point. Like, probably not not very well. And I also like have heard that like they just like a lot of times like like police will just like leave it. Like, yeah. <laughs> so one thing I think we also kind of skipped over is on the side of if it wasn't Jeff. His whole entire family was murdered. Mm-hmm. Like, are they giving him any mental health assistance? Right, true. Yeah, I mean, his grandparents are with him. So, like, I'm true. sure that they, you know, he could go live with them. But, yeah, I, it, yeah, I, I don't know. I, like, I will say, like, if it's not Jeff, like, who is it? Right. Like, that's where my brain goes. Like, like it just seems like they were just, like, very well-liked in the community. But I'm going to give a little tease here toward the end of, like, like hold on tight because... We can, we're, we'll, we'll give you guys something to think about, so I'll just put it that way. Um, but they do continue to investigate what became known as the Prom Night Murders, a tragedy that would scar the small town of Lakeville, Indiana, for years. Thirteen years, to be exact. That's how long it took for any arrest or any formal charges to be filed in this case. In 2002, the new district attorney in Lakeville, Indiana, was up for a really tough re-election, and he promised that as part of his campaign promise that he would close the Pelly family murder case and would finally get some justice in the mystery that has been shaking the town to its very core for more than a decade. And on August 2nd, 2002, he fulfilled that promise. Jeff, who was now 34, living in Florida, married with a child and working for IBM, and was a Sunday school teacher on the side, was arrested and charged with the murder of Rob, Don, Janelle, and Jolene. Oh my gosh. Did they find any new evidence? Or was the DA just like, let's finish this Now's up? The time. With, yeah. No. That, to, to, to answer your question, no. Like they, I mean, everything that they found was like exactly what they found on like day one. 
Um, oh so no, not at all. That that irks me because if there's nothing yeah. new, they just waited 13 years to make the same statement that most people yeah. probably thought. Yeah. Well, and and like like we talk about this so much on this podcast, but like the and like I'll never understand this at all. But like it is a reality. Like DAs are elected officials, right? And like there are elected officials who like have a lot of say in the criminal justice system. And so like if you're feeling that pressure and like you want to put your foot down about this about this thing, right? Like you. Like, like, regardless of whether or not it's a thing, like, it sucks, but, like, that's, like, that has effects on people's lives, and, like, you have the capabilities to do that, and it just blows my mind. Yeah, when you were first sharing this piece about the DA, my first thought was really, like, oh, this is such a campaign promise. Mm-hmm. Like, this has nothing to do with justice or the family. Right. He just wants to be reelected. Yeah, right. And, like, and like everyone's talking about this murder, these murders still, even 13 years later. Like, I'm sure it's, like, it's, like, the talk of the town, uh, like, in the grocery store at church. Like, you know, I'm sure even to this, to this day, like, every Sunday they're, like, let's pray for the Pelly family. Like, I'm sure of it. And so, yeah. like, it is such like a like a um you know a a culture i guess for this town i'm sure and so like like if he can harp on that and like put his foot down and say we're finally gonna do this like that that's a winning message you know what i mean like it's politics but it's real you know so right. it's just, yeah it's really upsetting but i don't i don't get it but that's that's the way the world works i guess sometimes so yeah. What did the rest of the family think about it? Well, his biological sister was convinced that Jeff was being wrongly accused. She just couldn't believe that Jeff could have possibly been responsible for murdering the rest of their family. And Jeff maintained his innocence all the way up until he went to his trial in July of 2006. Prosecutors argued that he shot and killed his dad, stepmother, and young stepsisters, cleaned up the shell casings, ditched the gun, cleaned his clothes in the washing machine, and took a shower, all within the span of 25 minutes in a fit of rage all over his grounding. But really as a show of the pent-up aggression that he had built for his father and stepmother over the course of 17 years. Investigators all testified that Jeff had even confessed the murders to one of his classmates while at the trip to the amusement park, but I never really saw like what specifically that confession sounded like, though. But at the end of this trial, the jury deliberated for multiple days and found Jeff guilty and sentenced him to 160 years in prison, 40 for each murder. Whoa, that's that's a lot. And that's just about to ruin his life with his new family, yeah, right? Right, right. Yeah, right. And like you move on and like, like again, going down the rabbit hole of like Jeff innocent here, right? Like, like he moved on from this whole thing, like tragic mm-hmm. situation. Like, if you really didn't do anything, had any have anything to do with this, like moved on, like built a new life in Florida, and like now he's being dragged right back into this, like potentially for political reasons. Like, man, yeah. like, but but on the other end of the uh, other end of the spectrum, like if he's guilty, like he got away with it for all this time. Yeah. So yeah, I I don't know. I I can't imagine. Like I don't. I I wonder like what his wife says. Like if if right. he knew that he was even like a suspect. Yeah. Wow. So what happened next? Is that it? Oh no, Jamie. That's not it. Even close to it, because Jeff would spend almost twenty years proving that he is an innocent man. <laughs> 
Crime Over Wine is proud to support Emancipat. Today, there are over 60 million beloved pets across the country whose families cannot access or afford veterinary care. With your help, Emancipat is changing that. Emancipat is a nonprofit that offers low-cost vet care for those who need it most. They rely on donations to keep their costs low for pet families across the country. You can support Emancipat's mission at emancipat.org. Jeff makes multiple appeals of his conviction, all based on the main ideas that there was no physical evidence directly linking him to the crime and that his constitutional rights were violated. For starters, they point out that this whole interview where Jeff reportedly slumped over and asked if he would get the electric chair wasn't recorded, so his new lawyers say that it never should have been even been admitted into evidence because there's no way to prove that it ever actually happened. Next, there were those jeans. The jeans that prosecutors presented in court as evidence that Jeff had washed his clothes and that there was blood all over them. Well, it actually turns out that the tests couldn't be definitive as to whether it was blood or possibly just laundry detergent. Somehow, I guess luminol, at least back then, reacts similarly to both somehow. But on top of that, his new lawyer said that there was evidence that the jeans weren't even washed at all. They were dirty, and there were legible receipts and coins found in the jeans, all proof that they never went through the washing machine. But they also argue that Jeff's original lawyers didn't provide Jeff with effective counsel because they knew that there was evidence that the jeans weren't washed and didn't object, violating his constitutional right to effective representation in court. Oh my goodness. So many things here. Yeah. First off, the luminol reacting the same mm -hmm. to blood and laundry detergent? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I like that. It makes no fucking sense to me at all. No. But like, that's where we were at back then, I suppose. But also too, like where I go, like, right. So like, and, and maybe this is just them being like, neither can be like, you can't prove that either are true. Mm. Like they're basically arguing that it, that they were washed and weren't washed at the same time. Right? right. Because if they, if like, if they, if it was possible that the blood, like the luminol was reacting to laundry detergent, that would obviously indicate that they were washed, but they're, they're also saying, that there's all this evidence that they weren't so i don't really i don't know i don't get it but like i, I guess this is again just them saying like like you can't prove that either are true yeah i suppose so yeah i do like wonder like about and like maybe that's the reason why like the the his original lawyers were like like didn't object like didn't say that this is like bullshit back in the original trial because they were like well like i can't contradict myself in the same sentence i can't say that they were washed and not washed at the same time yeah that's a good point yeah but and so but then also so like like what do you do there right because it's like it's it's like if you get up and say no they were dirty like hello like here's all this evidence that they were that they that they weren't washed but then they're like okay well so then that must mean that the blood that it was reacting to blood mm. but then you're just like oh no no but it must be laundry detergent okay well then why are they still dirty yeah you know so like how do you even go about that right right very messy yeah <laughs> No pun intended. <laughs> um, well, there's also evidence that Jeff's new lawyers present in court showing that Jeff couldn't have been responsible for killing his family with a shotgun anyways, because they present pictures of Jeff in the days after the killing without any bruising around his shoulder, which they said would be not only common but expected on someone who had just used a shotgun multiple times without proper protection. Interesting. I did not know that that was to be expected. Did they look yeah. at 
anybody else's bodies and if maybe say his father had bruises yeah good question because i would imagine if they did if he did kill them right like like if rob did kill his his wife and and kids and then killed himself um then it probably like he probably would have been dead by the time a bruise would even form Mm, that's a good point so yeah but but then but i go back to like how how did he clean up the shell casings how did he yeah good point so yeah yeah no but but a good point there too so yeah i don't know i don't know what to even think about that but like yeah i guess it makes sense right again i don't i don't nothing about guns at all um but like if i said that so many times in this podcast but like i guess it kind of makes sense right because if you put it there then like the recoil but i don't know if that's true i don't know if that's 100 percent because i feel like i also see like guns like where it's like tucked underneath your arm almost mm. so like the recoil like wouldn't really affect you yeah this is expecting that jeff knew exactly how to use the gun which mm-hmm. i mean he was a teen in proper form yeah right yeah 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 i mean I don't know. I also, like, culturally speaking, like, Midwest, Mm. Indiana, right? Like, I would guess, and, like, back in the 80s, like, I would guess that, like, his dad probably showed him. Because, like, like, because, like, that gun, like, very clearly, right, was, like, used for, like, like, protecting the home. Mm -hmm. If it's, like, up on the wall, it's in the master bedroom, that kind of thing. So, like, I'm sure that he, like, when he became, like, a man, right, like, Jeff became, like, a man, he was, like, okay, well, this is how, this is how you protect the house, son. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's, like, totally presumptive, but, like, I feel like it makes sense. This is getting me thinking if, if there's no physical evidence on Jeff with that bruise, you had mentioned earlier, and we glossed over a lot of other people had access to the house. You talked about that Mm -hmm. key to the church house. And I guess the prosecutors haven't really gone down that road yet. That is such a good point, Jamie. I never even thought about that. That is because you're like the entire church had access to this home. It sounded like anyways. That's such a good point. And like knew where the gun was. Yeah. They're not locked away. They're not locked away. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone can just go right (laughs) up there and take it and kill your whole family. Right. But yeah. So like that. But yeah. So I wonder how many like how many people they had to go find Mm. who could have had access to the home. Right. Right. Good. Jamie. I'm glad I brought you on, Jamie. I never (laughs) thought about that. Uh, But there's one last piece of evidence here, though, Jamie, that is, like, really insane. So hold on to your glass because it's about to get crazy. Um, It's testimony that they said wasn't given to them back in 2006 for Jeff's original trial. It's testimony from a woman named Tony Beeler. And again, like, hold on to your glasses, guys. This is a doozy. Tony was a salesperson who had tried to sell Rob a photographic church directory for his parish. And when Tony approached him about it, Rob had apparently responded saying that he didn't want to be in any of the pictures because he, quote, had another life prior to becoming a minister and that he didn't want to be found. Uh, okay. What the heck does that mean? Well, we do have to go back quite a bit for any of this to make any sort of sense. So, again, Rob was originally from Florida. And like we said, he moved to Indiana for a whole new life. Well, according to the podcast Counter Clock, which did an entire season on this case, he apparently moved in 1986 very abruptly because he had gotten involved with the mob in Florida. Oh, God. A pastor with the mob. Let's yeah. see how this goes. Well, I like wonder if he was like involved, if he was like a pastor mm. when he was involved with the mob, or like he was involved with the mob and like moved to Indiana to like become a pastor. It's like, it's like nobody would expect a pastor to be involved with the mob. Like, 
there's a whole lot of things here, right? Yeah, that's very true. Okay, I need to know more. Tell me more. Well, okay, so here's what happened, Jamie. Rob was living in Fort Myers as a data analyst for a banking company. And shortly before he moved away in 1986, the company came under a federal investigation for fraud, money laundering, and cocaine trafficking in South America. Apparently, according to Tony, Rob used to be intimately involved in at least the money laundering portion of this illegal operation. And when the Fed started, you know, eyeing the company, he had tried to escape and the mob clearly, you know, as mobs do, don't didn't really like that very much. In 1988, just a year before the Pelly family murders, one of Rob's business partners, Eric Dawson, was even murdered. But that case is still on paper, unsolved to this day. Oh my gosh. Okay, this took a turn. So he clearly wasn't a pastor when he was living in Florida, and apparently was doing some sketchy shit. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot of pastors who also wash money on the side, but like, (laughs) you know, know, maybe he was doing both. It's possible he was doing both. A little side hustle, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah. What's wrong with that? Right? Some of us do podcasts, some of us wash money. Either one or the other. So Tony made this whole statement on recording to investigators days after the murder, saying that Rob warned her that they were going to kill each member of his family and make him watch before they kill him. But Tony claims to have not been taken very seriously by police. This whole conversation was recorded on camera, but that recording was never given over to Jeff's defense team as evidence. Prosecutors argued that the video was, quote, hearsay within hearsay. But regardless, Jeff's lawyers argue it was potentially exculpatory evidence and said that this was a clear Brady violation. Brady laws cover this exact situation, saying that all evidence, specifically evidence that could point to innocence, needs to be turned over to the defense so that they could potentially use it to prove the defendant's innocence and possibly point a finger at someone else. Okay, backing up a little, Tony is a salesperson that just Mm -hmm. showed up to the house and no no okay. so no, no, no so I, I what i gathered here is that like he they have like a relationship like through the church kind of thing so like definitely not like a door-to-door kind of girly like at all like i think that they like had like they, it sounded like they had gone into like deep conversations about what they were going to do with this like pamphlet kind of thing that's still so weird though to tell some random salesperson yeah. like i agree oh i was involved in money laundering yeah what yeah yeah i yeah no no you're definitely not wrong <laughs> you're definitely not wrong about that and like like charlotte like definitely like first off definitely hearsay right like 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 the defense could or the prosecution who whoever like all these people could not like like dive like like um chop this up in, in court at all right so like like they're not wrong necessarily that um that this was like shouldn't have been admitted mm-hmm. but like the point being is that like the defense like should have at least had the opportunity to like raise it right so i don't know i, I like i'm right there with you like i don't put a whole lot of stake into tony into tony's claims but like it also kind of adds up with his life yeah you know what i mean like like it all like all these pieces kind of like fit together and like kind of what we know about rob like so right i don't really like discount it fully but i also am like okay i kind of understand why this wasn't presented in court for sure and doesn't this give them prompt to like dig into rob's past life Mm -hmm. and maybe like find out more about that well yeah and like that's a good point because like like regardless of of how much bullshit this was like you have to look into it right like you have to yes the guy's murdered like in like a very weird mysterious way like you have to at least see if it's true no yeah no totally yeah so i don't know i don't know just to like throw it away is just like odd but 
whatever. But an appeals court agreed with us, Jamie, and the conviction was overturned in 2008. But Jeff was again convicted just a year later. The Innocence Project even gets involved to take the case, and they are a group that is well known to get involved in cases where there is pretty strong reasonable doubt. Jeff appeals again, and they begin hearings in March of 2022, where the judge said the hearings produced a, quote, swimming pool of information that needed clarification. And in September of 2023, that's where things stand. Jeff is 51 now, and he is still in custody awaiting an appeal decision, which, as of the recording of this episode, could come out any day now. Oh my gosh. So how long has he been in custody? Since 2002, 21 years, right? So yeah, and and like I would imagine, so my guess is that he, so typically how this kind of thing happens is um, when when a conviction gets uh, gets overturned, um, which is what happened in 2008, I believe. If I'm, yeah, 2008, um, then they typically release you. So you can kind of, like, they lower your bonds. You can kind of, like, you mm. can go back out into the world um, because now there's, like, reasonable doubt. Um, but then obviously, like, you, you probably get indicted again. You get arrested again, that whole thing. Um, Got so, it. yeah. But, I mean, like, for, for a long freaking time, right? Like, I don't really understand kind of... I don't fully understand how the appeals process works in this way, but, like, from 2009 to 2022, there wasn't a whole lot going on. So it's like, what the heck? Like, I want to know what the heck was happening between that between that time period. Like, I didn't really get a whole lot of clarification on that. But that's where we are. <laughs> Anytime I listen to true crime, I'm always amazed by how slow mm-hmm. the legal process is. Like, yeah. if it wasn't Jeff, first off, the first half of his life was so traumatic. Yeah, right. And the second half, he was... Just in jail, right. honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so Ugh. true. Yeah, so yeah. I don't, I don't know what else to say about that, Jamie. I mean, that because it's just, it's just insane to me that that there's that this guy has been in jail for 21 years when for the 13 years prior to that they didn't have enough evidence to convict him and they didn't collect anything new in that time period but just like decided that this is how this was gonna go and all over like a situation where like they didn't really have like a whole lot to pin him on to begin with right like they didn't have they right. and they still don't like they like they like i don't like i don't know like i don't really know because like like the jeans like the jeans and the and the the shirt like the clothes it's to me not enough to to like not enough evidence at all like the the motive is so weak right like i like people get grounded all the time they don't kill their parents so right i don't know i mean it just it's it's messy. It's very mer- messy, murky. It's so messy, and obviously this was in the '80s, and they don't have quite the technology yeah. that we have these days. But um, I just feel like there's so much more that could have been tested. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I I I don't know. I don't. I I wish they could find the gun, right? Like I wish. Like right. I I don't know where they would even begin to look. Like it couldn't have gotten that far, right? Because if, if it yeah. was Jeff. Um, actually, even if it wasn't Jeff, because because if he left the house around five, right, like, and then th- as far as from what they gathered, like, they were dead by 530, it couldn't have gotten mm-hmm. that far. So, yeah, I don't know. And small town, I guess if they yeah. didn't know where to look, if it wasn't Jeff. But yeah, that's crazy that still to this day with this being brought up back in court right. now. Are they still looking for the gun? Probably not. I, it's, I'm sure it's long gone by now, right? I'm, well, yeah. No, I mean... It has to be around there somewhere, right? But like any of the any of the physical evidence that's left on that would still would be gone. 
Right. I mean, the shell casings, like, I don't know. It just it just felt like, it felt like one of those examples to me, in my opinion, that was just, like, they have their, like, their tunnel vision on one person, and mm-hmm. that's what kind of what they landed on. Yeah, yeah, so. which, you know, I don't necessarily blame them, but yeah. it's their responsibility to not right. do that. Right, like, they, like, right, you have to look into everybody possible and say that there is no way, like, this, like there is more evidence on this one person than there is in anybody else. Um, mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I don't really know how I feel about the, about the mob theory because I really feel like it's built on such a weak foundation of just, like, this yeah. one woman. Like, I, I, want, I would wonder what Jeff would have to say about that. Right. I want that to be explored yeah. more. Like, he worked for a whole company. There's right. got to be more people who can testify. Right. If he even did work for the whole company. I, I don't know. I, right. I, I, I don't really see that, like, you know, substantiated in anyone except for Tony. So, I don't know. What what do you, what is your, like, where's your gut? Like, do you, like, guilty, uh, innocent? Where, where, do you, where do you land on this? Oh, it's so hard. I mean, the first half of you telling the story, I was like, I agree. Yeah. All Jeff. Who else could it have been? But then I remembered the whole key situation. Right. Like, right. a lot of people, it seems like, had access to this house. Yeah. So, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I... I'm there with you too. I think I land, I think I have to land on innocent, honestly, because I just don't see, I just don't see the evidence that points to Jeff at all. Like, I really don't. Yeah. Like, I like there's nothing solid there at all. And also, like, I really, like, like I want to know more about this Tony woman, like, who she really is. Right. Like, if... Like beyond just like this, like like this person that like investigators led us to believe is just like like off the wall. So I just yeah. I want to know more about her background and like how much like the conversations really went. Supposedly, I just I need to know more about Rob. Like that's that's the person who I really need to know about yes. more about. I feel like if we if we can dig something up really good on Rob, that's gonna answer a whole lot of questions. Or if we can't dig up a whole lot of good things on Rob, then that's gonna answer a whole lot of questions too for me. Right. No, I'm right there with you. Oh wow. I can't believe that this is happening currently yeah. too. Like I'm 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 literally on the edge of my I know. seat. <laughs> like I I need this. Well so so all that to say, right, like like everyone like who's listening to this right now, right, because we've dropped a whole lot of um update episodes, you know, as of recently, um bonus episodes. Um and so we try to keep you guys updated as much as possible on these kind of cases that are like actively kind of playing out. So turn on your notifications, like you know, pay attention to our social media feeds because like as soon as we know anything about this one, we're gonna tell we're gonna drop in, we're gonna tell you guys about it. It because I need to know, Jamie needs to know, we all need to know what's happening here. Um, and it could happen any day now. We could get like a pretty definitive answer pretty much any day now. Wow. Well, you better let me know if you hear about it. Oh, you'll be coming back on, Jamie. You're not getting away from here if we if we get more information on this one. So you're not getting off that easy. Um, but with that being said, that is pretty much all that we have for you all this week. So Jamie, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been so fun and so intense, and I'm just happy that I got to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, tell everyone where they can find you and your work online in the meantime. Oh man, you can follow my personal Instagram if you would so wish. I'm at <laughs> Jamie Snover on Instagram. You should also follow Emancipet on Instagram. I'm a, I manage all of Emancipet's social media, so give us a follow um, on everywhere. All, all the platforms and yeah. Yeah, and we'll link to all that in our show notes, and we're going to tag um, Jamie and Emancipat on Instagram, too, and, and Facebook and all that, um, so that way you guys can follow, you know, go, go to our Instagram pages and find all the great things that you guys are doing over there, um, so... 
yeah so thank you again that's all to say thank you again so much for coming on um jamie and thank you all so much for listening we are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories too and if you are just loving this podcast and are just looking for a way to tell everyone and anyone about it the best way to help people discover this podcast is by leaving us a five-star rating and a review wherever you are listening right now so make sure you're following us on facebook twitter and instagram and if you're wondering what we have in store for you next week here's a quick sneak peek hello everybody it's liam and i'm abigail martin next week i'm joining the crime vineyard to talk about the death of a u.s army specialist that has left people scratching their heads for more than three years now and that's a case that needs your attention like right now and we'll tell you all about it next wine wednesday on another episode of crime over wine Proud member of the Podnougan Network.